Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 173rd episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going down under to Brisbane. I'm looking forward to checking out this city, Denise. And we are going to a location that was suggested to us by Danica Ellers. And that is the Commissariate Store. And we also have on this episode the eighth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Denise, sometimes we like to put a timestamp on our episodes when something big has happened in the world or what have you. First of all, we heard the news that Carrie Fisher had had a severe heart attack on an airplane and she was in the ICU. And then on Christmas Day, we lost George Michael. His music was music that I grew up with. I call it the soundtrack to my life. I pretty much have owned everything he's ever done. I had the Wham! posters up on my wall when I was a teeny bopper. And it was just very shocking, especially he was only a year older than you. Yes, he was only 53 years old. And then today, as we're taping this, we found out that this morning, Carrie Fisher passed away. Yes, and that, that was very sad as well. It's just, it's like Princess Leia. How does this happen? And she was only 60. So that's just kind of what's been happening in our world. And I think it affects us a little bit more because these are icons that we grew up with or people that we kind of feel like are our own. Right. Well, and they're they're pretty close to our own age, too, which is very, very scary that, you know, people can be taken that young. And at the heart of our show are ghost stories, which you have to have death, generally speaking, in order to have a ghost story. But I really hate death sometimes. Ditto. And before we get into talking about our location, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Eric, who has ends his name with CK. Hello, Eric, ending in CK. All right, Denise, are you ready to go down to Brisbane? I most certainly am. Let's do it. Okay. History Goes Bump is entirely listener supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History 
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. A posthumous execution is a ceremonial or ritual mutilation of a corpse as a type of punishment. For Christians centuries ago, there was a real purpose behind the morbid practice. It was believed that a body needed to be buried facing the east and that the body needed to be whole and intact in order to meet God when the resurrection occurred. Dismemberment was believed to stop the body from rising, so it was considered a form of punishment. Corpses were generally hung in public for a time and dismembered. Men like Oliver Cromwell and Robert Blake were subjected to posthumous executions. Cromwell's head was displayed on a stick for nearly 25 years and was never returned to his body. Even stranger is the fact that this practice still continues on even in the modern era. In 1986, General Gracia Jacques, who was a supporter of Haitian dictator Francois Duvalier, was exhumed and his body was ritually beaten to death. Bodies have also been unearthed to stand trial in the past. Interrogating or executing a dead body certainly is odd. of the dark. That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> this day in history. On this day, December 28th in 1938, the silent film star Florence Lawrence commits suicide in Beverly Hills. She had been born as Florence Bridgewood in 1886 to a vaudeville actress. Her mother took her on the road and she soon was joining her mother on stage. She had her first movie role in 1907. She appeared in nearly 250 films and was so successful that she was able to buy her own car, which was unheard of in the early 20th century. Although she was famous for being a silent film star, She was also a talented inventor. She designed the first auto-signaling arm, which was a mechanical turn signal that worked by pressing a button that raised or lowered a flag on the car's rear bumper that told other drivers which way a car was going to turn. She also invented the first mechanical brake signal that worked the same way. When a driver pressed the brake, a stop sign flipped up on the back bumper. Unfortunately, she did not patent these inventions, and so she received no credit or profit from either of them. She was only 52 when she took her own life. The History Goes Bump Podcast. The Commiserate Store in Brisbane is the second oldest building in the city and dates back to the early years when Brisbane was a penal colony. The penal settlement in Brisbane was the most violent and toughest on the continent. Convict laborers were used to build many of the early buildings in the settlement, which included the store. A violent confrontation during the construction seems to have led to at least one haunting at the store, 
but there could be more spirits hanging around the building that now houses a museum that includes some morbid artifacts among its displays. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the commiserate store. Brisbane is a very old city, one of the oldest in Australia. The area was inhabited by the Turbul and Jagera peoples, and they called it Mianjin, which means place shaped like a spike. As was the case with much of early Australia, Brisbane started as a penal colony. The first European to discover Moreton Bay was James Cook in 1770. The Englishman who circumnavigated Australia and recognized it as a continent was Matthew Flinders, and he was the first European to detail the Queensland coast more thoroughly, which he did in 1799. Moreton Bay is surrounded by these red-colored cliffs, and so I guess he decided that why not call it Red Cliff Point, so that's what it originally was called. And Flinders is also the person who put forward the idea that Australia should be named Australia, and he was taken up on that uh, suggestion. The governor of New South Wales was Sir Thomas Brisbane, and he ordered further exploration of the Moreton Bay because he wanted to establish a new northern penal settlement. Because of his leadership, the river was called the Brisbane, and later the settlement would carry the same name. Non-convicts started coming to Brisbane in 1838, and by 1842, Brisbane was declared a free settlement. Queensland separated from New South Wales in 1859, and Sir George Ferguson Bowen became the first governor of Queensland. Brisbane was chosen as the capital at that time, but it was not incorporated until 1902. The Moreton Bay Penal Settlement was considered experimental at the time it was founded. Commandant Henry Miller was tasked with finding a good location. The first place he chose proved to be indefensible and malarial mosquitoes swarmed heavily. That would make me run like you wouldn't believe, Denise, because I apparently have the blood type that mosquitoes love. They definitely like to chew on you. The second location was found in 1825 and was a triangle of land bounded on two sides by the Brisbane River and the escarpment which is now Wickham Terrace. An added bonus was that there was a natural barrier against escape. This settlement was as tough as they come. Only the most hardened criminals and reoffenders were sent to Moreton Bay. The prison was very violent and death from disease was rampant. Dressed for the convicts were gray jackets with the word felon painted across the back, trousers that buttoned on the side, and leather hats. The convicts worked in chain gangs of up to 15 men, and they were connected by fitted leg irons that had leather cuffs to prevent chafing. Between the irons was a length of chain attached to a rope that was used to keep the chain from dragging on the ground. And I don't know if they had to tie the rope around their waist to pull the chain up or if they had to hold the chain up with one of their hands while they worked with the other one. I'm not exactly sure how they did that and why they were worried about the chain dragging on the ground because I wouldn't think that they would break apart just from dragging along the dirt. And the reason why those trousers buttoned up the sides, Denise is because they wouldn't take these leg irons off of them. They had to wear them all the time, but this was so they could take their pants off at night when they went to sleep or whatever. Oh, wow. At least they gave them the leather cuffs to prevent chafing. They, they thought about them at least at that point. One of the jobs given to the convict laborers was the building of the commiserate store that would be Queenland's first stone building. The construction began in 1827 and would last for approximately two years. The local Aborigines would occasionally raid stocks of supplies for sugar and flour, and so this store was built to be secure with walls over two feet thick. The building was set into the surrounding riverbank between William Street and Queen's Wharf Road. 
It was a perfect location with a pier at the front of the building, making the delivery of government supplies easy. These supplies included tools, seeds, grain, and various other provisions. The goods stayed here until the department requisitioned them, and these included stores at Dunwich, the pilot station at Amity Point, and upriver to Ipswich. And that pier is no longer at the front of the building. It's been torn down long ago. When the penal settlement was closed, the commissariate store building served a number of other purposes. It became a repository for the Queensland State Archives and later a migrant depot. It is one of only two buildings to have survived from the convict era. Today, the Royal Historical Society of Queensland has its headquarters located inside the commissariate store building. They opened a museum there with many artifacts that may carry the same effect as objects, Denise, that we've seen at the Ripley's Auditorium. Bring in some of these objects that have either had certain things done with them or they were used for certain things, and sometimes they still hold on to that essence that was a part of them at one time. So you've got things in here like the gallows beam from Bogo Road Jail. So a lot of people were hanged on that beam. So you can only imagine what might be trapped within the wood there. Oh, I can. I, yes, definitely imagine. There's a lot of stuff that is from the time when it was an early settlement, not necessarily just when it was the convict era, but other people who started to come, the Europeans who were non-convicts. So it's like a typical museum where you see some of the old artifacts and implements and tools that they used to use. But then there's also these other interesting things. Like there's a bottle from the St. Helena Island Penal Establishment that has fingertips in it from unknown convicts. And they believe that the reason why there's these little fingertips in there is because these convicts would get these brilliant ideas. Remember we talked about Bonnie and Clyde for our haunted true crime episode and that Clyde had tried to, he took like a sledgehammer to his foot because he thought if he broke his toes and stuff, he wouldn't have to do work duty. And he basically crippled himself for the rest of his life. Well, these guys would cut their fingers off so Uh. that they'd be like, oh, I can't work. I mean, it's just brilliant. Okay. (laughs) Great way to solve that problem. So anyway, these kinds of objects, as we know, sometimes can carry this energy that leads to supernatural occurrences. And it would seem that something is haunting the store. And so the employees that work there, when they're in the building alone, have reported hearing strange noises like disembodied footsteps in vacant parts of the building. A side door has phantom footsteps phenomenon, which occur frequently, particularly after somebody has knocked on the door. It sounds as though someone is approaching the door to open it, but then comes to a stop and the door never opens. Objects are routinely moved from one place to another overnight, and shadowy figures are seen waving from the window of the empty building. It is thought that one of the ghosts of the store is a convict. The former president of the Royal Historical Society of Queensland, Alan Bell, remarked to the Courier Mail in an article published on October 9th in 2009 that he didn't think the building was haunted, even though there are reports that a ghostly convict roams the grounds. The story that is told is that two convicts were building something in the rear yard when one of them attacked the other with an axe. The victim was wheelbarrowed to the hospital where he later died. The convict that did the murdering was John Brungar. He had been a native of Kent and was convicted of a crime for which he was given a life sentence. This meant that he would have a free trip to the penal colony of Australia. He was loaded aboard the convict transport Prince Regent on September 17, 1819. There were 159 convicts aboard the ship, with 43 of them being sentenced to life sentences of servitude in Australia. 
The trip took them four months, and the ship landed in Sydney Cove. Brungar spent a year in Sydney before he got in trouble again and was brought up on charges at Paramata, and another two years was added to his already life sentence. You gotta love when somebody has a life sentence, and they're like, well, we're gonna add two years onto that. (laughs) It's already a life sentence. What's the point? I know. It's like, um, that was punishment, I guess. He was transferred to Newcastle in March of 1821. Four months after arriving there, he broke out and fled into the bush. He was found quickly and was given 50 lashes as punishment. See, they figured out adding years onto the life sentence, not a good idea. Giving him lashes, good idea. And the lashings that they would do, I don't know about this particular place that he was at, but I know at the Moreton Bay one, it was like a cat of nine tails is what they were using for that. He kept up his best behavior for a while and was put on detail to transport livestock from Windsor through the Wallis Plains. It was a poor decision on the part of the authorities as Brungar took off again. He was found once again and given 75 lashes as punishment this time. Poor guy just could not stay out of trouble and he was brought up on charges again that added another seven years to his life sentence. There really was no choice at this point but to send Brungar on to the Morton Bay Penal Settlement. Brungar was assigned to the chain gang that was building the commissariat store. On September 27, 1828, Brungar would commit his final offense. Another convict named William Perfoot was working nearby digging the trench work using a mattock. His mattock was considerably lighter than the other ones, and Brungar wanted to get it for his own. He first asked Perfoot to hand over the mattock, and I'm sure he didn't do it very nicely. So the man, of course, refused. The two got into a tussle, and the overseer told Brungar to move to the other side of the trench work. Brungar moved, but he was seething and plotting his revenge. At midday, he decided to carry out a plan of attack. He grabbed his mattock and ran across the pit until he reached Perfoot. He slammed the pick end of the mattock into the man's skull, and it sunk in two inches. Perfoot fell over, but he was not quite dead. Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) No. Brungar has just hit this guy in the head, basically with a pickaxe. Then what does he do? He grabs a shovel and gets back to work like nothing's happened. Nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> and of course, they're in this pit full of men who have all just witnessed this happen. So they're all watching him pick up the shovel, go back to work like, you guys didn't see anything, really. So they loaded Perfoot up into this wheelbarrow and carried him up the hill to the hospital. So the legend that's told about this appears to be true when it comes to the wheelbarrow being used rather than, you know, an ambulance or something like that. He actually languished for six days before he finally died from his injuries. Hmm. Brungar was sent to Sydney to face murder charges before the Supreme Court, and he was found guilty. This time, he did not have additional years added to his sentence. He was sentenced to die, and he was hanged shortly thereafter. The convict haunting the store could be either Perfut or Brungar. Neither actually died on the property, but their deaths were connected to it, or maybe it could be somebody else's spirit. It may not even necessarily be a convict. Because the stuff that I read, it didn't say that they saw a full-bodied apparition wearing these convicts' clothes. A lot of it is just hearing noises. It's not even really seeing something. So that's pretty much what we could find about this location. But Brisbane has a lot of hauntings going on there. A lot of them are connected to historical buildings, which we've added to our list and we'll get into in future episodes. But there were a few stories that didn't necessarily have a connection to a historical building that I thought would be fun to share with everybody. 
These were all documented by the Brisbane History website. In Barden, a few years ago, a young Brisbane woman claimed that the ghost of a tall young man with shoulder-length blonde hair, a surfy type she called him, had appeared one night beside her bed, stark naked. Friends and neighbors told her it must have been a prowler, a burglar, or wishful dreaming, but she was convinced that she had been visited by a ghost. Two other young women appeared on television shortly after to tell a similar story of a blonde-haired young man, completely naked, sitting in a tree outside their house in the leafy suburb of Barden, staring in through their window. Local opinion maintained that it was the ghost of a young man whose girlfriend had once lived in the house. A much more sinister collection of spirits inhabit an old house in another suburb on the western side of Brisbane. The address was not published. The house has a grim history. A tenant hanged himself there in the 1920s, and a previous owner refused to let anyone dig in the yard, which led to all sorts of speculation about buried bodies. Everyone who's lived in the house seems to have been caught up in its evil atmosphere, their lives disrupted by domestic arguments, mystery, and cruelty. A whole team of ghostly figures appear suddenly and disappear moments later inside and outside the building. A medium was called in in the 1970s and told newspapers that she felt terrible anguish and pain in every room of the blighted old house. And of course, if she knew the legends that went on there, that would be pretty easy to surmise. (laughs) An old Queensland-style home at Lutwick is said to be the lair of an unfriendly ghost. A security guard reported that he went there one hot December night at around midnight. When he entered the empty house, it was freezing cold. His teeth began to chatter with cold and fear. An eerie female voice came out of the darkness, screaming at him, Get out! Get out! Needless to say, he wasted no time obeying and has sworn never to return. The exact location of the house is a carefully guarded secret, but nothing in its recorded past accounts for the presence of a ghost. If I hear somebody telling me to get out, I'm like, no problem. <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'm out of here. here. <laughs> a pickle factory had once stood on the corner of Adelaide and Wharf Streets. It later became the home of Radio 4 BC. It was demolished some time ago. Nighttime radio announcers would complain that the broadcast room would get icy cold and that they would hear the sound of someone crying out for help. The sound usually came from a dumbwaiter-like shaft. When the building had been the pickle factory, there was a staff tea room in the back where the shaft was used to bring up food. One day, a factory worker fell down that shaft when he was fixing the lift. Could this have been his spirit? And as I always wonder, is it still haunting that corner or that property there? Brisbane is another city in Australia that it seems that we can add to the list of haunted cities. Do the spirits of those who died in or near some of these locations still roam about in the afterlife? Is the commiserate store that was built on the backs of convicts holding on to some of that negative energy and now reflecting as hauntings? Is there a spirit of a formerly alive convict hanging around the museum? Is the commiserate store haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like there's a lot of great historic buildings to visit here, Denise. I'm looking forward to that. And speaking of that area of the world, one of our listeners, Rhonda, who is from America, has been down in New Zealand having a little holiday getaway. And she got to meet up with one of our New Zealand listeners, Alana. So I thought that was really cool. And they had posted their pictures up in the Spooktacular crew. So it was neat to see people from two different continents having a meetup that are listeners of our show. And that's how they know each other. 
Yes, it was very cool. See what we're doing, Denise? We're bringing people together that way. I just love that. Yay. Now we're going to have to have like a song that's kind of like, a, you know, the hippie songs, like hold hands around the world thing. I, hasn't Coca-Cola already done that? Yes. We'd like to bring the world a Coke. So we're just going to, we'd like to bring the world a ghost in perfect harmony. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our next episode, we're going to have two specials coming up for you guys to bring the year to an end and to bring the new year in. So we're going to have a New Year's Eve special and a New Year's Day special. Back-to-back episodes. You guys are so spoiled. Yay, we like spoiling them. And then in January, for our first episode after the special, I've got to actually get out the new calendar, Denise, to open it up. We are going to be featuring Haunted Deadwood. Haunted Deadwood? Yay. I am looking forward to that one. And now we have the eighth installment in the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. This one is entitled Little Haunted House on the Prairie. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prassel. If you know your history of the American Great Plains, you have probably heard of a dwelling called either a soddy or a dugout. Now you have to imagine the Great Plains. There are vast expanses of tall grass prairies, not that many trees around. So the early settlers, the white people from the east, couldn't really build a log cabin very easily, but they needed some kind of shelter that they could make quickly. What they did was they dug a hole. There would be a bit of a wall, just high enough to maybe put in a few windows. The door to your dugout would be submerged. You actually walk down to get through the door, and then you put a roof over it. And the the building material wasn't brick, it wasn't wood, it was soil and grass, sod. Now, I came across an article that introduced me to something that never even occurred to me. It involves a haunted dugout. The article was published in the Red Cloud Chief, a newspaper from Nebraska, on April 27th of 1883. It doesn't have a headline, it just reads like this. The people of Downs, Kansas, are considerably excited over a haunted house, or rather, dugout. About half a mile from town is an island, nicknamed by some of the old soldiers of the town and vicinity Island No. 10, containing some 80 acres and surrounded by the waters of the Solomon. There are no improvements except a dugout, and this is constructed upon a more modern plan than the large majority of them, having a board and shingle roof. Several families have tried to live there, but only succeeded for a short time, having been driven away, as they said, by strange noises, appearance of unknown faces, ghosts, etc. Until quite recently, the place was abandoned, but lately a family consisting of husband, wife, and two children have been living there. Complaint was also made by this family of the house being haunted, and several of the citizens of Downs went over to the dugout, determined on investigating the matter, and this they did to their entire satisfaction. The party consisted of honest and conscientious citizens and good businessmen. Arrived at the dugout, they stationed themselves in and around the house, and there awaited events. Everything was still for a time, But in a little while, strange noises began to be heard, and soon a voice, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, was heard three times in succession. 
At this, the party set up such a scream that they could be heard in town, and yelling with all their might did not let up until reaching downs. There is no doubt of the dugout being haunted. In sight, and but a short distance away, was committed some two years ago one of the most cold-blooded murders that has ever been heard of. Further particulars are awaited with anxiety. Yikes. One of the things that I've learned from reading these Spectral Edition articles is that just about any dwelling can become a haunted house. You've been listening to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel. I have close to 300 of these articles, and I post one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. You can also listen to previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition. The name of the website again, The Merry Ghost Hunter. I hope you stop by. Thank you for that, Tim. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people would like to send us any feedback, where can they do that? They're going to do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We have a few iTunes reviews to share with you. Tony the Mechanic, Paranormal Gold, five stars. Every show is fascinating from beginning till end. I love how they take a listener's suggestions and turn them into a show. The different segments of the show, like This Day in History, keep the show very educational as well as spooky. Listen once and you will be hooked. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate that. And then we have Dallas Stars fan, the best of both, five stars. Our whole family enjoys this well-written, nicely produced, and professionally presented podcast. It combines our interest of history with our interest in the paranormal. These wonderful presenters produce a podcast that educates, enlightens, and most of all, it entertains. If you want a podcast that is fantastic and will leave you wanting more, this is the one. Again, we thank you so much for being listener-supported with no commercials. Bless you, too, for the great work. Thank you so much for that review. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Christina Lee for her one-time donation. Thanks. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.